Through the years, we've done a number of weddings here at Foothill. It was a few years ago. I don't remember exactly which year it was, but I counted 12 in one year, which uh, when you consider that most weddings are kind of consolidated in a few months out of 12, it made for a busy springtime in order to accommodate that many young uh, in love couples wanting to be married. And I love doing weddings. I love to be there and to uh, just to really bask in the, the joy of what's involved in, in all of that, but also the opportunity to speak to, this, to the young couple and through the young couple to those who have come to witness the exchange of vows by which a man and a woman are wed uh, before the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so having that opportunity to speak, I, I've written a number of wedding sermons through the years. I have a collection of wedding sermons that I have written. And one of those wedding sermons is called The Duties of Newlyweds. Duties of Newlyweds. And I've preached it a number of times because, if I can say this with I don't know if there'd be modesty involved or not, but I think it's pretty good. Um, and I think it's pretty good because it gets at some of the really significant issues that a young couple, a newlywed couple, will face as they begin life together in this uh, delightful one-flesh relationship of marriage. And in that sermon called The Duties of Newlyweds, I address the ministry of hospitality the ministry of hospitality, and, and really the need for a young couple just starting out to, to build this sanctifying practice into their married lives as soon as possible, to, to begin to extend themselves to others in that way. I suggest to them that they wait until they get home from their honeymoon, but as soon as practical thereafter, that they begin to open up their homes and their hearts to other people. Well, this morning we're continuing with the series that we began a month or so ago called Living as a Minority Community in a Hostile World. And the next topic underneath that broad heading is the essential Christian virtue of hospitality. I've entitled this morning's message, Hospitality is Our Practice. Hospitality is our practice. It characterizes the Christian life and all the more so as we see the day drawing near. I have a quote for you here from Alexander Strzok where he writes, The first Christians viewed themselves as part of a worldwide brotherhood that transcended all national racial, and social boundaries. They knew they were a persecuted minority in an intensely hostile world. Their very survival depended on active participation in the family of brothers and sisters. Hospitality, therefore, became one of the most significant practical expressions of this worldwide family of brothers and sisters and thus became one of the birthmarks of primitive Christianity. Those are profound words. A review of the various church histories will 
show a number of statements where the, the early church lovingly displayed hospitality in those early centuries. It was indeed the mark of the Christian brotherhood. They lacked buildings to meet in in the first few centuries, and so the Christian church was a home-based movement. It was the home from which the ministry occurred. It was often traveling and itinerant teachers and evangelists who would come and speak and edify the local congregations as they gathered together in various people's homes. These teachers, these itinerant teachers and evangelists, were dependent upon the hospitality of the Christian people to whom they came to provide for their needs, to provide lodging for them, to provide for their material sustenance, to to help them on their way to the next place that they were going to go and to minister in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as the centuries progressed... And the church became more institutionalized, particularly beginning in the early 4th century and forward. It began to acquire its own real estate. It began to establish itself as a worldwide religious movement that characterized and dominated the Roman Empire. And as that happened, their pilgrim status became a forgotten memory. And in losing that pilgrim status, that awareness of pilgrim status, the ministry of hospitality began to wane in the church. Interestingly, by the time of the 16th century, so that would be the 1500s, it had become to a large extent a a distant memory. John Calvin writes, mourning the demise of ancient hospitality as follows, quote, This office of humanity has nearly ceased to be properly observed among men. For the ancient hospitality celebrated in histories is unknown to us, and inns now supply the place of accommodations for strangers. Isn't that interesting? This is not a modern problem. This is a problem that has plagued the church of Jesus Christ for at least five centuries. And I would suggest longer than that. Now the word hospitality or hospitable comes from a combination of two Greek words. Philos, which means love or loving, basically. And xenos, which is a word for stranger or guest. So when put together, the word hospitality or hospitable means one who loves strangers, one who loves guests. It would be the opposite of the word xenophobia, which would be one who was fearful of those who were strange to them. So hospitality is a lover of strangers, a lover of guests. And what I want to do this morning as we sort of unpack and develop this idea is to to speak to you about five statements, five statements that help shape our understanding 
and practice of hospitality. Okay, five simple statements that, Lord willing, in the next 45 minutes or so, will help shape our understanding and practice, not just to know about it, but to do it, not to be a hearer of the word, but a doer, right, of hospitality. Now, let me clarify something right up first. Uh, there is a sort of a mistaken notion that, that travels around in some Christian circles that hospitality is a gift of the Spirit of God. It is a spiritual gift. And the problem with that is twofold. Number one, it's not true. So that's always a problem when you believe something that's not true. But the practical outworking of that misunderstanding is for people to conclude they don't have the spiritual gift. And so if hospitality is a spiritual gift and I don't have it, then therefore I am to some degree or another off the hook with regard to the exercise of hospitality. Let the gifted ones do it. But here's the bad news, or good news, depending how you want to look at it. Hospitality is not a spiritual gift. In fact, number one statement, hospitality is a command to be obeyed. Hospitality is a command to be obeyed. Now, the commands and injunctions and exhortations to hospitality are found in both Old and New Testament. In the time we have here, it's not possible to develop the entire biblical theology of hospitality from Genesis to Revelation. That's just not practical. So I will take you to a couple of Old Testament passages, just read them to you, make a comment or two to, to at least prove up the point that it is not just a New Testament phenomena, but it is very much woven into the Word of God from the beginning to the end because hospitality is to characterize the people of God of both dispensations. And then we will focus on the New Testament commands to hospitality, okay? So here we go. Number one, go back to Leviticus with me. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 and verses 33 and 34. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. This is the God's word through his mouthpiece Moses to the children of Israel as they resided there in the wilderness to receive the commands of the Lord. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 33. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, You are not to do him wrong, but it doesn't end there with just the absence of malice. You are indeed to do him good. You are to treat him as one of you. And so as you would care for your brothers, your sisters, your kin, your family, so you are to care for the stranger who is found among you. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and beginning in verse 17.
For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. God cares, you are to care as well. It is to emulate the very character of God. The practice of hospitality is the emulation of the character and heart of our God. Accordingly, it is very much a part of the fabric of the New Testament. And so what I want to do is I want to take you first to Romans chapter 12. And to demonstrate to you from there and a number of other verses the commandment to hospitality. Remember, hospitality is a command to be obeyed. So we should be able to find, that's a bold statement, we should be able to find supporting evidence of the reality that a call to hospitality is a commandment to be obeyed by the children of God. And there are a number of passages I want to look at here with you, and most of them are general commands spoken to the body at large, but there are a couple of specific commands we'll look at as well. But let's begin here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, where at the end of verse 13, it says, practicing hospitality, practicing hospitality. Now, actually, it could be translated in, uh, perhaps in the margin of your Bible, it might offer you this, where the, the word uh, here, diokontes, it comes from the verb dioko, which means to pursue or to chase after. And so perhaps you see it in the margin of your Bible, perhaps not, or maybe the translation you have it has handled it that way. But, but it's practicing hospitality, I think, in the NASB is a bit of an under-translation. Pursuing hospitality would be a better translation, my opinion. Chasing after hospitality would get at the idea behind this, the the idea of an active pursuit of hospitality. It is not something that is is, um, negotiable. It is something that is to be actively, vigorously chased after and pursued. But... Where is the commandment here, David? Where is your bold statement that it's a command that we are to be actively chasing and pursuing hospitality? Well, the command is found actually in verse 2 of this chapter. The imperative is found in verse 2 that controls all of what follows in this chapter. And so, looking back up to verses 1 and 2, where Paul, having recounted the uh, transforming gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapters 1 to 11 comes here to chapter 12 and says, therefore, in light of the gospel, right, we are to present our, our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then the imperative, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the command here, the imperative here is to be transformed. Do not be conformed, do not be squeezed, 
pressed into the mold of unregenerate humanity, but be transformed like a metamorphosis, like a, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, be transformed into new life, and that new life is characterized by all kinds of things, one of which is the practice, the pursuit, the active chasing of hospitality. Be transformed, actively pursuing hospitality. That is the command. Of course, it's a command that can only be obeyed in the power of the Spirit of God through the transforming grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, chapters 1 through 11. Turn your right to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And verse 2, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, the writer says. Do not neglect, a present middle imperative. There is the command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, if the writer tells us not to neglect something, then implicitly there is a duty involved, right? You, you can only neglect that which you are obligated to do. And so there is this obligation to, to practice hospitality, and the writer says that we are not to neglect that duty. Do not neglect it. To the right, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we find another command, another imperative with regard to hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, Again, we, we find here the, the, the commandment to, to, uh, to be hospitable uh, in the context of keeping fervent in your love for one another, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, the idea of, uh, of one another here that we find indicates to us that, that this is the call to hospitality is not merely a call to, to extend oneself to people who are complete strangers, but the one another indicates that it is something that is to be practiced within the body of Christ. You think about all the one another's of the New Testament, and this is one of them. So within the local body of Christ, among the believers, is this requirement to practice hospitality or to be hospitable. And then again, notice in verse 9, it's without complaint. The idea is without murmuring, without grumbling, without complaining. Without murmuring, grumbling, or complaining. We'll come to that in a little bit later, why Peter would tell us that. 
These are general commands to hospitality. There are specific commands. For example, turning back to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5. Where Paul addresses with Timothy how the local church is to care for the widows among them. Those who are the most vulnerable members of society. And he gives a a lengthy list here. He talks in verse 3 about honor widows who are widows indeed. And that is that they are true widows, not in the sense just that their husband has, they've lost their husband, but in the sense that in the loss of their husband, they've lost all ability to care for and support themselves. And so he, he speaks to the church and says, church, you have an obligation to support these widows, to provide for these widows. And of course, our mind goes back to, to Acts and, and the collection of, the, of uh, the food and the money and so forth to care for the widows, that kind of an idea. But here in the list, he says that not everyone who has lost their husband is a widow that qualifies for the church to undertake their financial security. There are only certain kinds of widows, those who are widows indeed. And he gives all kinds of of, um, tests, as it were, to to, uh, determine who qualifies and who doesn't. But what I want you to to see down in verse 9 is where it says, A widow is to be put on the list... Only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, and here's the important point for this morning, if she has shown hospitality to strangers. Put her on the list is the imperative. Put her on the list. Undertake her financial security, provide for her needs, food, clothing, shelter, provide for these things only if she has practiced or shown hospitality to strangers. That is, has her life been characterized by obedience to this incredibly important reality of the life of a child of God? Has she been one to practice hospitality? And then last, looking over at chapter 3 and verse 2, where Paul outlines there the qualifications for an elder. The qualifications for an elder. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Now, that is not a, a commandment statement. That, that The use of the verb must be there uh, speaks of something that is non-negotiable. An overseer, then, it would be a good idea if they were above reproach. That's not what Paul is communicating. What he is saying is there are non-negotiable here, that the overseer must be above reproach. And then he goes on to define what it means to be above reproach. And it is not a statement of perfection, but it is a a statement of maturity that will follow. And there are a number of character traits here. The overseer then must be above reproach. And notice as he goes on, uh, the second to last in that verse, they must be hospitable. You see it? So the overseer, non-negotiably, must be hospitable. 
must be hospitable. Now, it's interesting, I think, because often the, the call to hospitality seems to fall more heavily upon the ears and the conscience of the women in the congregation than it does upon the men. So a sermon preached on hospitality is, is often seems to be directed to the wives, and the men uh, seem to uh, find some escape hatch in there. Yeah, we would be more hospitable if my wife was more willing to, and then you fill in the blanks. But okay, we're going to burst the bubble. Ladies, gentlemen, sit up straight and pay attention because hospitality is your responsibility. Hospitality is your responsibility. It is not your wife's responsibility. Does she have a role to play? Of course. She has a very valuable role to play. You are one flesh. But the responsibility, as if all the responsibilities of the home, fall first and foremost on your shoulders, not hers. So notice... When it says an overseer then must be above reproach, it doesn't say has a wife who is hospitable. Do you notice that? It does not say that. Instead, what it says is that the man must be hospitable. The man must love strangers. The man must love and extend himself to guests and those who are outside of his normal circle. It is a question of male leadership. It is a question of mature male leadership within the home. That's why Timothy, or excuse me, Paul to Timothy includes it in the list of requirements by which a man's character and life and maturity before the Lord are to be evaluated before putting them into a position of leadership among the people of God. Men are qualified or disqualified for leadership based upon, to a large degree, the management of their home. And the management of their home includes, is it a hospitable place? Is it a hospitable place? It is the home that reveals much about the man's character. Okay? So, men. This sermon is first and foremost for you. It is a man's sermon. Hospitality, gentlemen, is a command to be obeyed. Ladies, not to leave you out. Hospitality, and you have a role to play and encourage your husband and pray for your husband and work together, and we'll talk about some of that. And I understand that much burden will fall upon you. Believe me, I know that. But understand this that it's your husband's responsibility, okay? So, number one, hospitality is a command to be obeyed. Number two, hospitality is a call to love others. Hospitality is a call to love others. What I want to do now is I'm going to go back and look at a number of these passages all over again, but I want to, I want to just point out to you the reality that, the, that these commands and exhortations to hospitality occur in a context which talks about brotherly love. So it is a command to be sure, but it's a command given in the context about what it means to love. What does it mean to love? So, again, back to uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Verse 
Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he will go on to, to begin to tease out what it means to love genuinely, honestly. And he'll talk about being devoted to one another in brotherly love and giving preference and not lagging behind and fervent in spirit, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the need of the saints, practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. It is the fruit of a transformed mind, chapter 12, verse 2. And the context overall is the transformed mind now is a loving mind. Before Christ, we are self-lovers. We always are lovers. Before Jesus Christ, we are self-lovers, and we are very good at it. Very good at it. After Jesus transforms us, by his grace, the Spirit of God takes residence within us. We are born from above. We continue as lovers, but the object of our love changes. The object of our love changes. And we go from being self-lovers to the lovers of God and consequent lovers to others, right? Greatest two commandments are to love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That is the transformation that the Spirit of God brings about in the life of his children. So, the practicing hospitality is in the context of love. Back to Hebrews again, Hebrews 13. Verse 1. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Let love of the brethren continue. That's the appeal. How is it answered? Do not neglect to show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality. That's what it means in this context to love. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Keep above all, verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another. To keep fervent, to be persistent, to, to resolve, to strain at. The idea um, would be an Olympic athlete. What an Olympic athlete goes through to prepare for and to conduct themselves in the Olympic Games. We certainly have plenty of illustrations of that sitting before us over the last couple of weeks, right? It is a full bore effort. It is a persistent effort. It is a resolved effort. It is a straining effort. And so what Peter says here is, above all, strain at, persist in, chase after your love for one another, and it will show itself as, verse 9, being hospitable. Hospitable. We'll introduce another one to you in 3 John. 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius. Verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they testify to your love before the church. 
You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with them. He goes on to write about Diotrephes, who will not receive them or accept them. These are ones have been, having been sent out by the Apostle John. They testify to your love. How do they testify to your love? They testify to your love because you have extended yourself in hospitality to these itinerant teachers and evangelists that have been sent out by John for the ministry to the wider body of Christ. Now, beloved, this... This call to hospitality is a, is a call to love others. And it, and it is a call that is gospel-driven, not works-driven. I think we need to make that point here. It is a gospel-driven call to love. It is, it is not a works-produced love. In other words, as the motivation for extending ourselves in love through hospitality to other people is a recognition of what has been done in us by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come to recognize that we ourselves were once unloving and uncaring, focused in our own little world, Concerned about only our own little things. And when I say our own little things, that, that, certainly that circle could be a little bit wider and could include our natural family. You know, we're going to take care of our own sort of things. But that is, that is the, the, the characteristic of the unredeemed mind. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we come to recognize that we, as sinners, that God has extended himself, he has loved us, he has invited us into the Father's house through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we meditate on hospitality, we think on hospitality, and in particular in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we recognize that, that it is an outworking, an expression of the gospel of Christ, and it is the motivation to love others. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, hospitality is a call to love others, but it is not a call to love them cheaply. It is an expensive call to love others. Hospitality is costly. Hospitality is costly. Now, I say costly, usually what we begin to think about is the financial cost. And there is a financial cost associated with being hospitable, if it is nothing more than the the cost of sharing some of your material possessions with other people. There's a real and legitimate cost in that. If you were to have someone in your home and and serve them dinner, that would certainly be more expensive than merely feeding your own family. So there is a sure financial cost. There is a, a cost associated with the possibility of damage to your home and your possessions. If you invite strangers into your home, they may not value things as you value them. And so there is a likely possibility, particularly if you extend yourself to those who have younger children, that there is going to be some wear and tear on the home that will result from that. 
We should minimize that reality. Now, that's not license, of course, to have somebody come in and smash your home. But at the same time, uh, we're not to live in a museum, right? Where you visit a person's home and like a docet, they take you around and, and describe everything to you and you can look but you cannot touch. Okay, I think the balance here is to recognize that God owns it all. Is that not true? He owns everything. And so whatever we have is a gift from him on loan. We are in the position of a steward. A steward. We are to manage God's possessions. So hospitality is costly. Hospitality is time-consuming. Hospitality is time-consuming. And the reason it's time-consuming is because people are messy. It is time-consuming because people are messy. Relationships take time. Inviting someone into your home opens the possibility that they will begin to tell you about their life. And if they tell you about their life, they're probably going to tell you about the problems that are associated with their life. And then there is going to come with that the obligation to try to do something about that. And so the way to stop yourself in all of that is just to, you know, go into your garage, close the door, and don't see anybody, right? Just live in your sanitized world. But if you begin to open your heart and love to other people through hospitality, you are going to find out that your time is not your own. That you are going to need to, to give it away. And woo, that confronts what? The selfish heart. Most of us, we'd rather give away money than time. So it's costly. It's also fatiguing. Hospitality is fatiguing. Pursuing relationships with people is exhausting. It is emotionally exhausting. It can be physically exhausting when, when you want to really just go to bed, right? It's 9 o'clock. You really want to go to bed, but the conversation is just getting going. And so now you are stuck with this decision, right? Do I, do I stay and love and, and really have productive conversation? Or do I say, hey, you know what? I've got to get up tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. You're out of here. It's going to challenge you going to challenge us hospitality is a privacy denying hospitality is privacy denying probably the best illustration of that is have you ever had house guests have you ever had house guests if you have had house guests for an extended period of time you will find out that hospitality is privacy denying you just can't walk around in your PJs, right? I mean, there's just so many things that are, that are associated with having another family or another person living in your home. You will give up privacy. That's costly. And occasionally it's dangerous. Occasionally it can be dangerous, particularly if we extend ourselves to the certain segments of our society who perhaps have had involvement in substance abuse or other things like that. It could potentially be dangerous. We need to recognize that reality. I am, uh, I am humbled by the words of David, the great king of Israel, when 
the plague that had come upon the nation because he had numbered the people. And you remember the, the plague was stopped at the threshing floor of Aruna. And there David wanted to offer a sacrifice to the Lord for his mercy and grace. And Aruna said to him, basically, hey, you know what? Take my oxen, take the threshing sledge, just, you know, slaughter the oxen, smash up the wood, and offer your offering to the Lord. However, the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. The ministry of hospitality is costly. It is costly. Third, hospitality is is a centerpiece of Christian community. Hospitality is a centerpiece of Christian community. That is, there is a a theological reality that that sits underneath the ministry of hospitality and, and gives it its strength and its power and its compelling nature. And it goes... Basically like this, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we have been baptized into one body by one spirit. We have been placed into the body of Christ by the baptism of the spirit. Jesus, the baptizer, the spirit, the baptizing agent. And thus, we now share a common life. That is the common life of the indwelling spirit of God. It's what stands underneath and behind the celebration of the Lord's table, right? We are one together because of the indwelling spirit. That's a theological reality. At the moment, one places saving faith in Jesus Christ. One is baptized into the body of Christ, becomes a permanent member of the body of Christ. We are related to one another. According to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, Christ is now our brother. So if Jesus is my brother and Jesus is your brother, then therefore you and I are related. We are related. Okay? So we are, we are one together in the brotherhood, the body of Christ. That means the church is our family. Church is our family. In the New Testament, the use of the word brother, sister, or brethren appears over 250 times in the New Testament. Over 250 times, the believers are referred to as brother or sister or brethren. Peter refers to the church, the Christians, as the brotherhood. 1 Peter 2.17, where he says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. Love the brotherhood. Alexander Strzok, again, in his really powerful little booklet called The Hospitality Commands, says, and I quote, Sadly, by the end of the third century, such endearing terminology, brother, sister, brethren, began to disappear among Christians. We use brother or sister now because we can't remember somebody's name. Not because we're making a theological statement. Right? Hey, brother. Right? Sister. 
much easier than trying to remember their name. But it's not because often, usually I would suspect, it's not because we are thinking theologically about the implications of being one together in the family of God, the brotherhood of believers. By the way, this uh, disappearance of the terminology coincides with the growth of the institutional church. There seems to be a tie here. So I think as we, as we contemplate the reality of who we are together as a, as a body of Christ, as a local body of believers here, our relationship with each other because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, then, then the, the love of the brethren, the one another's, begin to grow. And as that love grows, hospitality becomes a, a centerpiece of that love. So, for example, 1 Thessalonians. You remember the church at Thessalonica? They were a young church, but they were a powerful church. The Spirit was active in the church at Thessalonica. And in fact, the church at Thessalonica was so active in loving, and I would suggest to you that, that the loving was a practical loving that, that certainly included a, a large dose of hospitality, such that their names rang out all over the ancient world. Paul writes, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Your love is, is ringing out all over the place. I would suggest it's, it's your hospitality that is ringing out all over the place. And by the way, don't rest on your laurels. Excel still more. Excel still more. So hospitality is a command to be obeyed. Hospitality is a call to love others. Hospitality is a centerpiece of Christian community. Fourth, hospitality is a characteristic in which to grow. It is a characteristic in which we are to grow. Like every other aspect of the Christian life, we are, we are called to walk in the Spirit and by the Spirit's empowerment to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? And we are all on that journey in the likeness of Christ, and, and we are all in different places. The Spirit is working in each of us individually according to His will as He is conforming us to the image of Christ. As we are striving to grow in our obedience to the Word of God, some are, are striving more harder than others. Some have made greater progress than others. We all have an infinite distance to go, so it's not like some people are almost on the edge of our having arrived. We all have much more to go than we've accomplished, yet there still is the reality that some are further along. Some are more mature in their faith than others. That's the reality. Hospitality is part of that growth in sanctification. So it is something for me to grow in. It is something for you to grow in. It is not something to become satisfied in or with. To say, okay, well, I've got that. There are other things I need to work on, but I've got that. Listen, no, you don't have that. None of us have that. All of us are called to grow in that. Now, 
Hospitality is more than inviting people into your home for a meal. It is more than that. But it is not less than that. It is more than that, but it is not less than that. In other words, to to be genuinely hospitable, one must open their home. To be genuinely hospitable, one must open their home. Why can I say that? Well, I say that because the home is the place of intimacy. It is the place of safety. And so to open one's home is to open one's heart. It is to allow someone into that intimate, safe place. Rather than hold them at arm's distance, it's to invite them in. To invite them in. In that sermon on the duties of newlyweds, I say to those newlyweds that it is not the size of your home, but the size of your heart to determine how generous you are with regard to hospitality. It is not a function of square footage. It is a function of the square footage of our hearts. How much, under the power of the Spirit of God, have we opened up our hearts to others? That's how we grow. That's how we grow. Now, it's a work of the transformed mind. So some make more progress than others, right? Nobody's mastered it. Everybody needs to be stretched. Everybody needs to be stretched in this area. So perhaps you've not really made much progress at all. So if that's true, I want to just suggest a few practical tips to get started. Can I just do that with you? Just a, a few basic practical tips to just begin to get started. Okay, they're simple. It begins like this. First, make a list. Make a list of people that you would like to invite into your home. Those who are strangers to you. Start start small. Start within the body. Start within your small group. And make a list of them. And then begin to invite them into your home. Second, make sure the home is cleaned and the meal is prepared on Saturday. Make sure the, the home is cleaned and the meal is prepared on Saturday. So that means simple meals. Okay? This is not entertainment. When we entertain, we seek to impress those by the, you know, all the things we have. But if we are extending ourselves in love and hospitality, very simple fare is all that's necessary. And so preparing ahead of time makes it that much easier. And again, men, that doesn't mean you sit on the couch while your wife slaves all day Saturday. And then you can say, yeah, I'm kind of a hospitable dude. (laughs) Right? Well, that means you put on the towel of the servants last week. Okay? Collect and file inexpensive recipes. Share them with each other. Fourth, purchase a guest book. Purchase a guest book. We... We've had the privilege of having a guest book for decades, and it is so encouraging to go back through your guest book and to see how many people have come through your lives and, and where they are now. And it's, just, it's an encouraging thing. So purchase yourself a guest book. Five, be interested in people's lives and plan some questions that will draw them out. 
Some people are not very good conversationalists. Did you know that? Some people, you ask them a question, and you don't get much more than a grunt. And that's when you think to yourself, ooh, this could be long. Right? So plan ahead. Think, think up some, some questions that will help to draw people out. You know what? Everybody, you find the right topic, everybody likes to talk. You just got to find it. So, so think ahead of time so you can draw them out. Come up with some of those questions. Another possibility, verse, or number six, is to set aside a prophet's room. Set aside a little prophet's room. A little place where traveling missionaries or needy college students could find a place to, to stay and, and, and find rest. Okay? Maybe, maybe, for example, there, it's uh, Thanksgiving weekend and, and most of the college students are going somewhere, but there are some college students in these local colleges who have no place to go over Thanksgiving. Open your home to them. Invite them into your lives. Seven, remember you're not there to entertain. You're not there to entertain, so invite your guests to participate in your family. Whatever your family, whatever it looks like. If you read the Bible together in the morning and you have an overnight guest, invite them to join you in reading the scriptures together. Don't adjust your routine. Invite them into your routine. So invite them to join you and read the scriptures together. Or to sing. Or to play games. Or, you know what, if you've got chores to do, invite them to do the chores with you. Just invite them into your life and live out Christ before them. Live out Christ before them. Number five. Hospitality is a container by which we carry the gospel. Hospitality is a container by which we carry the gospel. We've said it already, but hospitality displays and reflects the character of God. It displays and reflects the character of God. God reaches out to unwanted, needy people who cannot reciprocate. That is the heart of God. If it were not the heart of God, you would not be here this morning and nor would I. So we, we emulate the heart of God. We, we live out the gospel before people. I think one of the Challenging passages in this whole discussion of hospitality is found in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Where Jesus had been invited to a feast and so forth. And it says, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Ugh. That's hard. That's hard. To begin to open up our heart and to love people from whom we're not going to get much back. That's hard. But we need to begin somewhere. We need to begin somewhere. Beloved, hospitality opens up your life to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. 
gives people a glimpse into the Christian life. You know, m- most of your neighbors or your, your coworkers and so forth, they have no idea what a Christian is. They have no idea. They have, a, they have some sort of a characterization that has been built by either some association or, or some uh, prior contact with someone which may or may not have been a true believer and may or may not have represented Christ accurately to them. They certainly have what the, what the news media and so forth puts forward as the Christian faith. And so it's a, it's a caricature and it's often very, very far from the truth. So to invite people in in that way is to begin to show them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I can just tell you from my own personal testimony that, that I was astounded when I was first introduced to Christian people as a junior in college, I had no idea what Christians are like. All I knew was this, this having grown up in a heavily Roman Catholic area and been turned off by all that I had seen, that's what I thought Christianity was. And it wasn't until I began to meet real Christian people that I thought, wow, these people are normal. They're normal. Sharing a meal together is a very intimate thing to do. We talked about that. And being involved in that intimate activity, it's a natural to begin to talk about intimate things. And what is more intimate than the state of your soul? It's that chance to, to begin to speak about eternity. The early church, Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says, From house to house. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. From house to house, it went on. That's not just that the believers gathered in little Bible studies in people's homes. They did do that. But they would invite in their neighbors. And people would, would come in and there that, that Christ would be preached to them. And the church would grow. Taking a needy person into your home is a tangible way to demonstrate the care and concern for the person rather than an evangelistic project. And people can tell the difference. Do we care about someone because they're made in the image of God? Or do we only care about, hey, if I invite you in, now we've created this obligation. You've got to sit and listen to me tell you this thing. And if you don't respond properly next, right? Make a line. No, 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 no. It's to love people. It's to love people. By the way, hospitality stands behind the history of the church's early involvements in, in caring for the poor and the needy. The Christian church is at the forefront, always has been at the forefront, of caring for the poor and needy of society. It's really interesting. In the fourth century, they, there was the early founding of hospitals and hospices, hospitals and hospices, both drawn from the root word from which we get, yes, you guessed it, hospitality, hospitality. So the Christian church, in practical ways, fleshes out the principle of hospitality and the caring for the poor and the indigent. There's a lot more we could say to be sure. But at least we have an idea of now what it is. 
and why it is so vital to the health of the church. May God, in his infinite mercy and grace, apply the truth of his word to my heart and to yours so that we would would begin to think on these things, that we would begin to to meditate on the realities of our own salvation and, and the implications of that to others. And may, by God's grace, we look back a year from now, the end of the summer of 2017, should the Lord tarry, and to be able to say, God, in your grace, I made progress here. I'm not in the same place I once was. I'm not the same person I once was. May God help us to grow. Let's pray. Father, be easy to be overwhelmed, to see the need around us and it's so large we can become paralyzed and do nothing it's easy father to be wrapped up in our own problems our own responsibilities the the tremendous pressures that we find ourselves under living in this 21st century in one of the more hectic places in the country It seems, Father, that our lives can so easily be wrapped up in getting up in the morning and going to work and coming home tired and having dinner and collapsing into bed and doing it again and again and again and again and living for the weekend. And when the weekend arrives, all we want to do is be left alone. Father, we need your help. We need need your spirit to really work in us. Apply the truth where it needs to be applied to my heart and to to that of my brothers and sisters here. Not Not in some generic way, not in some general way, but in a specific area. Maybe there's that one person, Father, that that neighbor, that coworker, that friend. Maybe it's maybe it's someone here, a member of a of the small group in which we find ourselves, or or somebody that you've you've that we've smiled at on Sunday morning, we've nodded and, and, and used that general, hey, brother, hey, sister, because we really don't know them at all. Can't even remember their name. Father, we need to start. Each of us needs to start. Each of us needs to continue. We need to persevere. Father, help us. Please. We love you. We want to to bring you glory in our lives. Pray that we could make progress in this grace-driven, gospel-preaching progress. For Jesus' sake, amen.